Book Two, Chapter Eleven of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. McKeith's absence was longer than he had expected. Lady Bridget heard from Harry the Blower on his return with the downgoing mails that the little bush township of Tunumburra had become the scene of a convocation of pastoralists called to concert measures against the threatened strike. The mailman reported that the district was now in a state of great commotion, and the strikers, gathering silently in armed force, prepared to defend their rights against a number of free labourers whom the sheep-owners were importing from the south. The men who had killed McKeith's horses were, according to the mailman, entrenched in the range awaiting developments. It was thought that nothing would happen on a large scale until the arrival of the free labourers and the troops, which it was said the government was sending. Harry the Blower talked darkly of marauding bands, ambushed foes, and perilous encounters on his road, all of which waxed in number and bloodthirstiness after the manner of Falstaff's men in Buckram, but nobody ever took Harry the Blower's yarns very seriously. It would have been natural for Lady Bridget to work herself up into a state of humanitarian excitement. The O'Haras had always espoused unpopular causes but since the arrival of the English mail, a curious dreaminess had come upon her. She spent idle hours in the hammock on the veranda, and would only rouse herself spasmodically to some trivial burst of energy, perhaps a boiling water skirmish against white ants, or a sudden fit of gardening, planting seeds, training the wild cucumber vines upon the veranda posts, or watering the shrubs and flowers within the rough paling fence that enclosed the house and garden. A new-made garden, for ornament rather than for use, for the staple produce was grown in the Chinaman's garden by the lagoon, young passion-fruit vines barely concealing the fence's nakedness, a mango, a few small orange trees now in flower, a Brazilian cherry, two or three flat-stone peach trees and loquets, all looking thirsty for rain. That was all. The old humpy, as it was called, had creepers overgrowing its roof, a nesting place for frogs, lizards, snakes. And Lady Bridget, brave enough for doughty deeds, could never overcome her terror of horned beasts and reptiles. McKeith's office, where he entered the branding tallies and posted the station log, was in the old humpy, and two or three bachelor bedrooms opposite the wing with kitchen and store. But Lady Bridget lived chiefly in the new house, less picturesque with its zinc roofing and deficiency of green drapings, but being built on sawn lengths of saplings, more or less fortified against snakes. In front there was a great vacant space between the ground and the floor of the house, pleasant enough in summer, when a gentle draught could find its way through the cracks between the boards, but cold in winter, though the northern winters were not sharp enough or long enough for this to be a serious discomfort. Nor, when Lady Bridget slept alone in the new house, did she mind much the dogs and harmless animals that couched under the boards. They gave her a sense of companionship. But there was a herd of goats, some of them old and with big tough horns, which McKeith had started in his bachelor days to provide milk when, as sometimes happened, the milked cows failed, also to furnish savoury messes of kid's flesh, a pleasant change from the eternal salt beef varied with wild duck. Occasionally it happened, especially in mustering times, that nobody remembered to pen the goats in their yard by the lagoon, and on these occasions they would get under the house, and the noise of their horns knocking against the floor of her bedroom would so effectively destroy Lady Bridget's chances of sleep that she would rise in the night and drive them into their fold. 
these were incidents which added variety to the monotony of her life in the bush the head station was very quiet one afternoon most of the hands being out with the tailing mob and lady bridget in a restless mood went for a roam through the bush she walked past the chinaman's garden and fo wang carrying up buckets of water to his young cabbages stopped to smile blandly and report on his produce but she was in no mood for the interchange of remarks in pidgin english it was lonelier at the head of the lagoon she could hear the trumpeter geese tuning up in shrill cornet-like notes and the discordant shriek of native companions as the long-legged grey birds stalked consequentially at the water's edge she disturbed a flock of parrots in the white cedar tree and a covey of duck rose with a whirring of pinions and a mighty quacking shaking the drips off their plumage so that they glittered like diamonds in the sun from the limbs of the dead gum tree hung flying foxes their bat-like wings extended limply and a gigantic crane stood in melancholy reflection upon one leg lady bridget crossed the gully and roamed the borders of the gadir scrub here in an occasional open patch were wattles breaking into yellow bloom and sandalwood trees already in blossom scenting the air faintly and making bright splashes upon the grey and black background of the mournful gadir she filled her arms with flowers and wandered on long past the stockyards into the fastness of the gully where lay dark pools almost empty now and where grey volcanic-looking rocks seemed to make a rampart between the scrub and the head station she was sitting there her back against a boulder the forest behind her so motionless that inquisitive bower birds and leatherheads came quite close to her feet her small pointed chin poked forward her eyes shadowy and mysterious as the still water pools below she was visioning in space that man who had once undoubtedly cast a strong spell upon her the spell had been broken by his own infidelity if it were infidelity of the real man for she could never believe that he had not truly loved her broken secondly by the counteracting influence of her husband but now it seemed that the news of him in lady gaverick's letter had started the old vibrations afresh it was as if an iron wall between them had suddenly been knocked down and he had gained access to her inner self for months she had scarcely thought of him last night she had seen him in a dream and he had spoken to her he had said of course i loved you i never loved any one better but i felt that you were not of an accommodating disposition that i could not give you anything you really wanted and that we should not be happy together that was all of the dream she had brought back but she knew that there had been a great deal more the impression had been so vivid that she could not rid herself of the fancy that he was within actual reach of her it was impossible to imagine him fourteen thousand miles distant she did not try now to fight against this haunting but yielded herself to the power of the dream when she heard a footstep in the forest behind her she started and turned and stared into the dim aisles of the gadea as though she expected to see his ghost mithus mithus me wombo plenty my bean look out for you plenty mine frightened to go along the head station lady bridget laughed hysterically what a contrast between the romantic hero of her dreams and the figure of the black boy before her wombo had been in the wars very little was left of the trim understudy of mungar bill he was hatless his crimean shirt was torn into ribbons his moleskin breeches were covered with blood and dirt the strap belt with its sheathed knife and various pouches was gone and this judging from the state of his legs and feet had been forcibly removed 
A gash from a tomahawk disfigured his head. The woolly hair was matted with blood, but there remained still something of the prieur chevalier about Wombo. "'Mine bring it gin belonging to me,' he announced with dignity, making an introductory gesture towards what appeared almost an excrescence upon the black trunk of a gidea tree, except for an old red blanket slung round one shoulder, which only half covered a woman's dusky form. "'That Oola! Mine want him marry Oola! Black teller belonging to that feller plenty cooler!' Note. Cooler, in black's language, meaning angry. "'My been sneak camp! Me catch him, Oola! Black feller look out! Throw him tomahawk! Nulla nulla!' Note. Nulla nulla, a black's weapon. End note. "'My word! Big feller fight! Me yan plenty quick! Oola yan plenty quick!' Note. Yan, to go away. End note. "'Black feller come after! Throw him spear!' Close up, Mumkull. Note, Mumkull, to kill. End note. Baal can pull out spear. Ulla plenty cry. Note, Baal, no, not. End note. Ulla joined in with the black's plaintive wail. Yuka. Note, Yuka, alas. End note. Poor fella Ulla. Wombo pulled her forward, a comely half-caste who, as a child, had been partially civilised by a stockman's wife on one of the Lura outstations, but who had, later, gone back to her tribe and married a mile, as the wild blacks are called. She was very young, soft and round of outline, with hair straighter and more glossy than is usual among her kind, and large black eyes now raining tears. She wiped them away with a sooty hand, pink in the palm, her left arm hung limp by her side. Lady Bridget jumped to her feet, all concern. "'Oh, you poor thing! You poor, poor thing!' she cried. For Wombo, tweaking aside the concealing blanket, showed the smooth shaft of a spear transfixed in the quivering flesh of Oola's arm, above the elbow. He had broken off the long end of the spear to expedite their flight, so he explained in his queer lingo but Oola had cried so much that he had not been able to draw out the rest of the shaft. "'Bujeri, you white Mary,' pleaded Oola in the native formula. "'You give it medicine. You give it one old fellow's skirt. Baal, Oola got him clothes. Baal got him ration. Plenty sick, this fella.' And she beat her breast with the arm that was unhurt. "'Of course I'll give you medicine, and food, and I'll look out for something for you to put on.' "'Only for heaven's sake, stop crying,' said Lady Bridget. "'Come along. You must have that spear pulled out and your arm seen to. "'Come with me to the Humby, quick. Mara, make haste.' But Wombo drew back, casting an affrighted glance down the gully towards the crossing. "'Baal, me go along a Humby. I believe boss Popo, Ula,' he said. "'Note. Popo. To shoot. End note.' Wombo, you are foolish. What for boss shoot Ulla? Yowie. Note. Yowie. Yes. End note. I believe when boss say popo, my word, that one popo. Plenty black fella frightened. Bridget pushed the unhappy gin along the track. You needn't be frightened. Boss has gone away. Boss no sit down longer humpy. Wombo looked relieved and while Bridget reassured him, the three moved on towards the crossing. In answer to Lady Bridget's questioning, the black boy told his story as they went. 
she already knew of wombo's passion for the young gin who was within the prohibited degree of relationship therefore taboo to him and who moreover was already legitimately wedded to a warrior of the tribe she knew also that mckeith had forbidden the black boy under pain of severe penalty to seek the coveted bride of course it was all nonsense about his shooting the poor creature though no doubt in ordinary circumstances he would have sent them off the station but hard as he was and lady bridget had learnt that her husband could be very hard he would never be inhuman and naturally oola's wound must be dressed lady bridget hurried them over the crossing and up the hill the white men were all out with the cattle she needed assistance and seeing mrs henser at the kitchen window of the bachelors quarters called to her please come out at once i want you the woman's face became sullen on the instant i can't come now i'm in the middle of my baking but don't you see the thing is important this poor gin has a spear through her arm it must be attended to immediately wombo is hurt too the wounds must be washed and dressed look at the poor creatures mrs hensor contemptuously surveyed wombo and his erring partner serve them right he's stolen her from her husband and the blacks have given them what for they don't need any fussing over these niggers they are used to being knocked about lady bridget's eyes blazed but her tone was icy i suppose you understand that i've given you my orders to attend to a wounded fellow-creature well i don't call blacks fellow-creatures do you suppose we should not all be having spears thrown at us if the niggers weren't afraid of mr mckeith's gun you have my orders repeated lady bridget sharply with her wrath at white heat i take no orders from anybody but the boss and his orders were that if wombo brought the gin here they'd got to be driven off retorted mrs hensor they will not be driven off you will answer to your master for this disobedience said lady bridget mrs hensor laughed insolently oh i'm not afraid of mr mckeith finding fault with me and she withdrew out of sight into the kitchen end of book two chapter eleven